0: Amen. God is faithful. In the midst of whatever circumstances we're going through, God is faithful. We can trust Him. He is trustworthy. And uh, that's really what we've been seeing over the course of our study through the Passion Week. That's what we're going to see this morning, specifically as we dive in uh, to Wednesday and Thursday of the Passion Week, looking at what God is doing in the silence. We sang it in the silence, in the waiting, still we can know that you are. Good. If you have your copy of God's Word, turn with me to the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 14. And while you are turning to Mark chapter 14, help me out here. We have three goals for why we are studying the Passion Week. Three goals, and what are they? Goal number one, to know. We want to know the events of the Passion Week. We want to know them chronologically. We want to familiarize ourselves with them. We want to do that so that... We would feel as if these events happened last week, that we would feel that they are so close in the rearview mirror that we are remembering them, we're feeling them, we're experiencing them. We want to know the events of the Passion Week. Second goal, what's the second one? We want... What? We want to learn how to apply uh, a historical narrative passage. We want to learn how to apply stories the majority of the Bible is stories, they're true stories, they're not made up stories, but the majority of the Bible is narrative, and I believe that a lot of people struggle to apply narrative. What are we to do with a story? So what? There's a story. How do we apply those realities to our lives? It's much easier to apply imperatives, right? The Bible says do this and, you know, children obey your parents. That's easy to apply. So how do we apply stories? And we're looking through these narratives, these stories of Jesus and what he is doing during the Passion Week to try and ask that question. How do we apply historical narrative? And then the third goal. So we've got know, we've got apply. And what's the third goal? Grow. grow. We always want to grow in our affection for the Lord. We don't want to just know more about him. We want to grow in our love for him. We want to see his majesty. This is what uh, 2 Corinthians 3 says, that by beholding his glory... We are transformed, so we want to behold his glory in order to be transformed, to grow into likeness, to grow our affections for him. So th- those are our three goals, know, apply, and grow. Now let's talk about knowledge. Let's talk about, uh, let's go all the way back to a, a few weeks before the triumphal entry. So before Palm Sunday, what is Jesus doing such that Palm Sunday is something he makes happen. What is he doing? You remember? Yeah, he is taking the long way around from Ephraim. Instead of going from Ephraim, the short journey back to Jerusalem, he's going the long way through Samaria, through Galilee, uh, down the Jordan River, uh, into Bethany. He's gathering crowds around himself such that when he stays in Bethany on Friday before the triumphal entry, he spends the night there and the crowd goes in because of the Sabbath. They want to make sure they get into Jerusalem before the sun goes down. They go in And the two questions everybody is asking is, is Jesus going to show up for the Passover at all? Uh, Is he going to be here because he is a fugitive? He is on the run from the religious leaders and from the law that they have set up. So is he even going to show up? And then secondly, since everybody's answering, yes, he's going to show up. We were with him. The next question is, when is he going to be here? He's not going to be here on Saturday because that's the Sabbath. So the next time that we can go visit him and the next time he's going to come visit us, is Sunday. So triumphal entry happens on Sunday. Then what events take place on Monday? There are two things that happen on Monday. What are they? Two C's and T's. He curses the tree as he's walking into Jerusalem, and then as he goes into Jerusalem, what does he do next? Cleanses the temple. So Sunday is the triumphal entry. Monday, he curses a tree and cleanses the temple. We talked about all of the details for why he's doing both of those things then he leaves. He goes back to Bethany, and then in Bethany, he spends the night, comes back on Tuesday, and what does he do all day Tuesday? He's teaching, right? He teaches on the lesson of the fig tree as he walks into Jerusalem, and then all day Tuesday in the temple, he takes over, and there are questions that are raised against him by the religious leaders. They are telling him, uh, you are not somebody that is worthy to be followed. They're trying to trap him and to stump him with their questions. Remember, that was the way that they had plan A designed. Plan A was, we want this guy to not be followed by the crowd, so let's get the crowds on our side to say that he's a fool. Maybe they'll riot against him and destroy him, and we don't even have to step in. So that's plan A. We get the crowds on our side by making Jesus out to look like a fool. And every time they try to raise a question, it ends up flying back in their face, right? What was the first question? Let's go through the questions. First question, Uh, By whose authority are you doing these things? These things is cleansing the temple. The Sadducees own the temple. They're asking the questions, who who gave you the authority to do this? And Jesus asks the question about John the Baptist. They say, we we can't answer you. Jesus says, neither will I answer you. End of question number one. Question number two by the Pharisees, what is it? It's the taxes, right? Should we pay taxes to Caesar? Excellent question. uh, If you're trying to trap... Jesus between the crowds, because the crowds think that Jesus is Messiah. Messiah's job, according to the crowds and the Jewish people, is to deliver them from Rome. And so they hate Rome. They hate paying taxes to Rome. And so this is a great question to set up a trap, because if Jesus says, yes, we should pay, that's going to make the crowd say, boo, we don't like this guy because we don't want to pay to Rome. And yet Jesus says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, render to God the things that are God's. The crowds are amazed and uh, the Pharisees walk away knowing that they lost the crowds that much more incrementally away from, uh, from Jesus, uh, from themselves to Jesus. Third question, Sadducees ask, a very ridiculous question. Who is the woman married to in the resurrection? She had seven different husbands. Who is she married to? And Jesus says, you don't understand the word of God. That's why you don't understand the answer to your own question. Uh, they are neither married nor given in marriage in heaven. Humans aren't married to each other in heaven. Humans are married to Christ. The bride of Christ is married to Christ in heaven. That's it. And then he says, but let me answer the question that you didn't even ask concerning the resurrection from the dead, the fact that the dead are raised. And then he proves from the Old Testament that there is an afterlife. There is a resurrection from the dead. Once you die in this life, you don't stay dead. You are immortal in your soul and your body will be raised from the dead at the end of time. What passage does he go to to prove that? Goes to the burning bush, right? And he proves it with the tense of a verb. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Not I was their God, but they're dead. And therefore, I'm no longer their God. No, it's I am still currently their God because they are still currently alive. Jesus leaves on Tuesday after uh, teaching those three questions. The fourth question, it's a genuine question. As he's leaving, he's getting ready to leave the temple. What's that fourth question? What's the greatest commandment? This man, this Pharisee, sees that the, the answers that Jesus is, is giving are very, very biblically sound, uh, accurate answers, wise answers. And so this man says, What's the greatest commandment? And you remember love God, love people. Those two are the singular commandment, the one commandment that's uh, wrapped up in those two commands. So Jesus leaves. Uh, the temple. Peter says, hey, these, these beautiful stones, this beautiful temple, this is going to be ours. We're going to own this temple. When you become king, you're going to destroy Rome sometime, and we're going to own this place. And Jesus says, no, not one stone will be left upon another. And Peter says, when's that going to happen? When's this place going to be destroyed? And Jesus goes into the Olivet Discourse, Mark chapter 13, as he teaches as he's walking back to Bethany from the Mount of Olives. Goes back, spends the night in Bethany, and that's, that's Tuesday. We, we left off in Mark chapter 14, verses 1 and 2. The Passover and unleavened bread were two days away, so Passover is Thursday, so we're still Tuesday. The last thing that happens on Tuesday is the chief priests and the scribes are seeking to seize Jesus by stealth and to kill him, but they're saying not during the festival, otherwise there might be a riot of the people. So they're still saying, okay, we've, we have to find a time to get rid of this guy. Plan A has failed. The crowds love him even more. So how are we going to get rid of him? And the answer is we have to take him by stealth at a time when the crowds are not going to be around him. When is that going to be? The next time that that's possible is Thursday, the Passover. That's when everybody's going to be home celebrating the Passover with their families and away from the temple and away from the streets. There aren't going to be crowds. That's the next time that this is possible. That ends Tuesday. So we have Palm Sunday, we have Good Friday. We have Resurrection Sunday. We have names for these, labels for these days. But, but what, what do we do with Wednesday? Uh, Wednesday, we don't really have a name for. We have a name for Thursday, Maundy Thursday, which means a commandment, mandate Thursday, where Jesus gives a new command in the upper room. What do we do with Wednesday? We're going to look this morning at Wednesday and let it spill into Thursday. Wednesday is traditionally called a silent Day. It's called Silent Wednesday, which is uh, strange. Once you get, you get, you know, Palm Sunday, Triumphal Entry on Sunday, you get Good Friday, Monday, Thursday. You have all these different names, and then you have just Silent Wednesday. Seems like, it's pointless. Seems like there should be no sermon on a silent day. It's silent not because nothing happened that day. It's silent because nothing was written about what happened that day. The Bible, as it were, is silent about Wednesday. There's nothing that says, the next day, on Wednesday, Jesus did this, or the disciples did that. But this morning, what I want us to do is look at this silent day. I want to look at it historically. I believe that we can actually piece together a lot of what took place on this silent day. I think we can do it from what's going to take place the end of Tuesday night and all day Thursday. I think we can figure out what happens on Wednesday. And so I want to look at it in two ways. I want to look at this silent day historically, and then I want to look at it theologically. So historically, we're going to paint the picture of what actually happened on Wednesday. The Bible doesn't say explicitly what takes place on Wednesday, but I think we can infer and imply from other passages what's going on. And then I want us to move to theologically. So what? Why does it matter that we have a silent day? And I think right off the bat we can say this. If you have ever felt like God is silent. If you have ever felt like God is not listening to you or answering you, if you've ever felt like God is distant, like you are waiting and waiting and waiting and wondering what God is up to, what is he doing? I think that this day, this silent Wednesday has massive implication for you as you wait upon the Lord, as in the silence and in the waiting. You trust that he is good, that he's working even when it doesn't feel like anything is happening. So that's what we're going to look at this morning. Let's pray and ask God's blessing upon our time together. Father, we come before you, broken, needy people. We, we, we long to live out the songs that we have sung today. But we can't do that on our own strength. We long to trust you in the waiting, to know that you're good. But our flesh rises up to say, excuse me, you should answer me. It's been long enough. I'm done with the waiting. I'm ready for an answer. I'm done with the silence. Can we move on? Can you answer me and can you act? God, thank you for biblical books like Habakkuk that give us voice to lament. And then thank you for this morning where we can see what you are doing in the waiting. That you are working in the silence. So Father, I pray for our church, whether here in person or whether watching online, that you would encourage our hearts this morning that while we might not be able to see what you're doing, and we feel like it's taking way longer than we think it should, we can know you are working. You have not stopped working. You have not quit on the job. You are working in the midst of our waiting. And therefore, in the midst of our waiting, we want to worship. Help us do that this morning. Open our eyes, Holy Spirit, that we would behold wonderful things from your law. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. All right, so let's look at this silent day, Wednesday, and then we'll move into Thursday. Let's look at it first historically, okay? I wanna paint a picture historically of what I believe is happening. I think even though the Bible is silent about what actually takes place on Wednesday, I think that we can piece together a lot of what is happening on this day. I think the silence of the Bible about this day actually helps us understand what is taking place on this day. And if you want uh, just, again, some helpful ways to remember very quick, you know, like Monday, cleansing the temple, cursing the tree, uh, there's two things that are happening on Wednesday, I believe, that we can see from the implications of Thursday. Two things that are happening, and they're both uh, JPs. Judas is planning, and Jesus is planning. Judas is planning, and Jesus is planning. And they're both planning in secret, which is why I believe we don't have any ink spilled on what they're doing, because they are planning secretively. They're, they're planning uh, behind closed doors, as it were. Let's start with Judas. Number one, Judas is planning. So historically, what's happening? On the silent day, Judas is planning. Back in Mark chapter 14, we saw that the chief priests are saying, we got to take him and destroy him, but we can't do it during the middle of the crowds, during the middle of the, the hustle and bustle of what's going on during Passover. We have to wait until the evening of Passover. That's the next time we can take him, because that's the next time that the crowds are going to be gone. That's the most opportune moment. So we know when we want to get him. But the question is Where? Where is Passover going to be held? That's the question. If they could answer that question, they can get him. They have no idea where Passover is going to be held. But they know somebody who does. And his name is Judas. That's why Mark actually does a flashback in verses 3 through 9. A flashback to the week before the triumphal entry. To this party that was thrown in Jesus' honor. uh, By Lazarus at Simon the leper's house who is a leper no more because he was healed by Jesus, so he's fine to throw a party too because of what Jesus has done to heal him. And you remember, uh, there's a woman who breaks a very costly alabaster vial of perfume. She pours it out on Jesus. She doesn't save any of it. And the disciples gather around Jesus, and they say, she should not have done that. You should have rebuked her because she's wasted all of this money that could have been used For the poor. And Jesus rebukes them, including Judas. Uh, The poor you will always have with you. What she has done, she's done to prepare me for burial. She's poured out affection upon me. She's loved me. She's given extravagant devotion to me. And that is what sends Judas. If you go down to verse 10, it sends Judas to the religious leaders. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, so this is still Friday, Saturday before. The triumphal entry, Judas Iscariot, who was one of the 12, went to the chief priests in order to betray Jesus to them. So before Palm Sunday, Judas had already gone to the religious leaders to say, Hey, I hate this guy too. The religious leaders, back when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, they already wanted him dead. They wanted Jesus gone. And so now Judas says, Hey, me too. I'm done with this guy. I'm sick of being rebuked by him. I'm sick of seeing other people love him when I don't think he's worthy of love. I'm tired of this man. I want done with him. So they were glad, verse 11, when they heard this, and they promised to give him money. You remember, 30 pieces of silver, the price of a common slave, not a lot of money at all. And he's fine. He doesn't. Want, he's not doing this for money. He just hates God. He hates Jesus. So they're glad. They promised to give him money. And then this is what Judas is hired to do. He began seeking how to betray him. How and when at an opportune time. How do we betray this man and when do we do it? The when we know now. When we get to the end of Tuesday, we know the when. The when is going to be Thursday night. We're going to take him Thursday night because Passover is when he is going to be most removed from the crowds. But how, we don't know. Where is this room? Where where are they going to be celebrating the Passover? Judas is hired to find this opportune moment and then to go back and to tell the religious leaders. Turn to Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22, verse 6. Luke gives us an even more explicit detail about what Judas is doing. He consents to betray Jesus, and he began seeking a good opportunity to betray him to them apart from the crowds, away from the crowds. So there's not a riot. Plan A failed, so we're moving to plan B. Let's get him away from the crowds. So here's what Judas is doing on this silent Wednesday. He goes to the religious leaders, and they say to him, hey, I think the next uh, best time that we can take him We we talked on Tuesday. I think the next best time we can take him is Passover. And Judas says, yes, I agree. And they say, okay, where's Passover going to be held? And he says, I don't know. I'm going to try and find that out for you. I'm going to go back. I'm going to try and see, put on a good face about, let me know when it'll be, uh, where it'll be, so I can go serve and set it up and get it all ready. But you need to be ready. This is what Judas is planning with the religious leaders. Get your guards ready. Get, Get everybody ready to betray him, to arrest him. Get everybody ready to take him by force on thursday night because i can't promise you that i'm going to know where the upper room is and it might be that i don't figure out where it is until i'm actually there and when i actually get there i'm going to find a way to get out of there i'm going to come get you and we have to book it back to that room to take jesus so you need to be ready when are we going to take him thursday night where is Thursday night going to be held? Where is the Passover going to be held? I don't know yet, Judas is saying, but I'm going to find out. And if I don't find out today, then get your guards ready because I'll find out on Thursday night when I take the Passover with Jesus and the other disciples and I'll, I'll get out of there somehow and I'll come get you and we'll go grab him. Judas is planning. Secondly, Jesus is planning. Jesus is planning the opposite of what Judas is planning. Judas is planning when they're going to take Jesus, when they're going to arrest him, If Judas had his way, if the religious leaders had their way, they would know exactly where this upper room is held. They would go to the upper room on Thursday morning. They would stay in the upper room. And then when Jesus shows up there to take the Passover, surprise, we're here, we arrest you, we take you, we try you Thursday night into Friday. And when the sun just begins to shine really early in the morning on Friday, we kill him. They want him dead before anybody wakes up on Friday but they can't figure out where this upper room is going to be. They can't figure it out. So what is, Judas, or what is Jesus doing? Go back in Luke chapter 22, uh, continuing right where we were in verse 7. Then came the first day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So this is Thursday. And look at what Jesus does. Jesus sends Peter and John, only two disciples and trustworthy disciples, Saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us so that we may eat it. And they said to him, Where? (laughs) Where are we going? Where do you want us to prepare it? Nobody knows, right? This is Thursday morning, and nobody knows where the Passover is going to be held. Where am I going to go prepare it? And Jesus says this, verse 10 When you enter the city, when when you enter Jerusalem, there's going to be a man who's going to meet you. He'll meet you. He's carrying a pitcher of water you follow him into the house that he enters. And you shall say to the owner of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large furnished upper room. Prepare it there. And they left just Peter and John into Jerusalem and they found everything exactly as he had told them and they prepared the Passover. So they found the man with the pitcher of water on his head. They found the upper room exactly as they had been told by jesus furnished prepared ready to go how does that happen some people say it's a miracle i don't think we need it to be a miracle i think jesus planned it on wednesday jesus somehow maybe through lazarus or mary or martha and bethany said i need you to go into jerusalem to talk to uh we believe i'm I'm gonna i'm gonna put this here we'll come back to it that the upper room that they take the Passover in, it's more than likely Mark's parents' house. It's not a uh, hotel. It's not a place where, you know, they just dropped in to partake of a meal. It's an actual guest room. It's a place where they know the family. It'd be like, if you guys come over for Thanksgiving, you come over, you hang out. It's not your house, but you know me. It's not a surprise that you would show up at my door and we can all hang out together and enjoy a meal. So this is probably Mark's parents' house. Mark is a little bit younger than the disciples, so this is uh, probably their parents' house, and I think I can prove that to you in the Bible. So uh, Jesus says on Wednesday, maybe to Mary and Martha, hey, you know Mark's parents. You know we've been to their house before. He's doing this all in secret. Hey, could you, without telling anybody, go in, find their house, talk to them, ask them to prepare for us to partake of Passover? Ask them to get it ready. We want to to take the Passover in the upper room. Ask them to get it ready. And then, could you have one of their uh, male servants walk out in Jerusalem around 10 o'clock in the morning with a pitcher of water on his head and look for Peter and John. Everybody knows who Peter and John is. Just have him look for Peter and John. And when he sees them, grab them, flag them down, take them back. I'm going to send them around 9.30 so they'll be in Jerusalem around 10 o'clock. And they'll go to the upper room and they'll have it furnished and ready to go. All they need to do is get the animal, sacrifice it, and start cooking it. That's what Jesus is doing. He's doing it all in secret. He's planning this whole upper room being furnished and ready. And he's doing it in secret because if Judas knows where the upper room is, Then he would go Thursday morning, tell the religious leaders. Religious leaders go back to the upper room. They wait there. They lie in wait. And then they kidnap, arrest, and capture Jesus on Thursday night. Go back over to Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14 says this in an even more explicit way. Mark chapter 14, verse 12. On the first day of unleavened bread, when the Passover lamb was being sacrificed, his disciples said to him, Where do you want us to go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? You know who one of those disciples is? Judas. I bet Judas is asking this a lot. Hey, Master, I'd love to help you out. If you just tell me where we're going to have Passover, just let me know. I'll go in right now. I'll get it ready for you. Do you have a place? Do you have a plan? And Jesus keeps it silent, keeps it secret, keeps it away from Judas. No, I have a plan, but I'm not telling anybody yet. I think Judas is asking over and over and over again, because he wants to get this ambush ready. But Jesus plans in such a way where Judas can't know. And I think you can see all this play out on Thursday. I think you can see it play out. So Judas is planning. Jesus is planning. Judas is saying, get the guards ready because we're going to ambush uh, and kidnap Jesus and arrest him. Uh, I just don't know when, I, I don't know where, The upper room is where we're going to celebrate the Passover, and Jesus is planning where that Passover is going to be, but he's doing it in secret. That's why I don't think there's any ink spilled on this, because nobody knew what was happening. So let's go to Thursday, and I think we can see it played out. Number one, Jesus only sends Peter and John into Jerusalem by themselves to find this guy with the pitcher of water on his head. How does this guy know to be there? How does this guy know to find Peter and John? Why does Jesus only send Peter and John? Why don't they all go together? They find it already prepared. Uh, Secondly, they find it already prepared. They find it already furnished. Jesus had planned for this to already be furnished. They're not taking over somebody else's Passover. He planned this Passover meal for them to be celebrated in the upper room. Then they all go later from Bethany to the upper room at the very last moment on Thursday evening. They walk in to Jerusalem from Bethany such that Judas has to be with them, and he can't peel off and go to the religious leaders. The the location had been hidden from Judas until he actually enters the room. Ah, I should have guessed, right? I should have guessed that it was Mark's parents' house, of course. Now he knows where it is. Then, go to John. John chapter 13. John chapter 13, you guys remembered, in the upper room, at the Passover Seder, Jesus says, truly, truly, this is verse 21 in John chapter 13, one of you will betray me. The disciples look at each other, they're at a loss to know which one he's speaking about. There was reclining on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, so Simon Peter gestured to him, said to him, tell us who it is with whom he was speaking, he leans back on Jesus' bosom and he says, Lord, who is it? Jesus answers, that, that's the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. So John actually knows that it's Judas because Jesus dips the morsel and gives it to Judas, and I think John is stunned. No way it's Judas. No, th- that can't be. Which, by the way, there's an implication for us right off the bat. Nobody guessed that it was Judas. When Jesus says, one of you will betray me, nobody goes, well, if I had to take a guess, I'd guess it's Judas. He's doing a great job at his hypocrisy in heart. Because he hasn't shown it to anybody. Nobody knows it's him. Even when John finds out that it is him, John is speechless. Jesus then answers, uh, it's the one that I give the morsel to, he dips the morsel, he takes it, he gives it to Judas, the son of is- Simon Iscariot. After the morsel, Satan then enters into, into Judas, and Jesus then says to him, what you do, do it quickly. Now, no one of those reclining at the table knew for what purpose he had said this. So they all hear Jesus say, hey, what you have to do, go do it quickly. Once again, he just said, somebody's going to betray me. And then he looks at Judas and goes, and what you need to do, go do it quickly. And nobody goes, betray, do what he has to do, betray. Is it betray? Is it Judas? Nobody says that, right? Then Jesus says, do it quickly. Nobody was guessing that that was the case. Why? Verse 29. Because some were supposing, because Judas had the money box, he was the treasurer of the disciples, that Jesus was saying to him, buy the things that we need for the feast. Or else maybe he was giving money to the poor. So after receiving the morsel, he went out immediately. And it was night. So Jesus has kept the upper room secret. Judas didn't know until he was actually there reclining at the table. And then he's trying to find a way to get out of there. I need to go tell the religious leaders, I know where the upper room is, I know where Jesus is, the guards are ready, I planned that on Wednesday, let's go get him. I have to just find a time when I can get out of here and it doesn't look super conspicuous. And Jesus gives him the out. Hey, you need to do something, go do it quickly. And he says, "Uh, okay, thanks. And I bet he just kinda slowly gets up and he walks by guys, walks to the door, and then closes the door behind him and then just runs, right? Runs to the religious leaders in the temple, ready and waiting to hear where the Passover is being celebrated. After that, go back to Mark. Mark chapter 14. Judas leaves the upper room to go get the guards. Mark chapter 14 tells us in verse 26 that then Jesus leaves with the disciples. After singing a hymn, After establishing the Lord's Supper and singing a hymn, then they all went out to the Mount of Olives. So the disciples, the ones that are left, minus Judas, they all go out of the upper room to the Mount of Olives. So Judas leaves, Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper, they talk about it for a while, and then Jesus says, let's sing a hymn and let's go. And they leave. So where is Judas going to show up with the guards? He's gonna show up at the upper room, right? He didn't know that Jesus was leaving. In fact, usually at Passover, you celebrate the Passover, you eat a huge meal, you drink a lot of wine, and you sleep in the next day. And so they're just planning on staying there that evening on Thursday, sleeping in Friday, and just enjoying the celebration. It's a holiday. And so Judas doesn't expect him to be on the move at all, so he goes and he gets the religious leaders and he goes back to Mark's parents' house And they knock on the door. And I think I can prove this to you from the end of Mark uh, 14, or the middle of Mark uh, 14, in verse 51. So this is in the Garden of Gethsemane. When Judas goes with the religious leaders and the guards, they finally go to the Garden of Gethsemane after Jesus has prayed. We'll we'll look at this in just a few moments. But in verse 51, you have this very strange verse, a couple of verses here. There's a young man in the garden who's following after Jesus. So he's not a disciple, because he would have been there. He's not following after Jesus. He somehow followed from a distance to the garden. And he was wearing nothing but a linen sheet over his naked body. And the guard sees this man, but he he pulls free of the linen sheet and he escapes naked. Uh, Who is this guy? There's no name given. I think probably because, and most people would say, this is actually Mark himself, the one who's writing this account. Now, why why does that make sense? And why is that the piece of the puzzle that kind of closes everything together? Judas goes from the temple, getting the religious leaders and the guards, back to the upper room, knocks on the door, open up in the name of the law, We have come to arrest Jesus. They open the door, and it's Mark's mom. Mark's mom says, can we help you? And Judas says, yeah, of course you can help us. Where's Jesus? We were just here. And she says, "Uh, no, they're gone. They're not here. Where would they have gone? I don't know. They left. I don't know where they went. They left. But in in the midst of the chaos of knocking on the door, yelling at Mark's mom... I think Mark probably wakes up. He's a little bit younger than the other disciples. He probably already just went to bed. They're gone. The feast is over. I'm going to bed. And he gets woken up by the guards. And he hears that they're going to chase Jesus down to arrest him. Excuse me, I want to know what's going on. So he just wraps his blanket around him. And he gets up, doesn't have time to put clothes on, just wraps the blanket and follows at a distance. And he's following, and Judas knows exactly where to look for Jesus. If I had to take one guess, Judas says, Jesus is probably hiding in the Mount of Olives in the Garden of Gethsemane. That's probably where he's gone, because he normally goes there to pray. He normally goes there to sleep. There's a big cave there that fits all the disciples. It's a great place between Bethany and Jerusalem. He stayed there many times before. So my guess is if he's gone from the upper room, he's probably gone to Gethsemane. And... Mark follows behind the cohort of soldiers. I want to see what's going on. So, you know, he's doing the, uh, the cronk thing from Emperor's New Groove, right? You know, doing his own theme music, uh, falling behind him. <laughs> Just doesn't want to be caught, doesn't want to be seen, doing a great job at it. And then when they actually get to the garden, chaos ensues. Mark runs away as all the disciples are fleeing. He's like, I got to get out of here too. A guard grabs him, only gets the linen sheet, and Mark runs away naked why would mark be in the garden if it weren't for judas going to mark's house to try and arrest jesus but jesus had already fled away and that ends thursday and the arrest happens and friday begins with the trials of jesus so you can see number 1 historically what is going on on silent wednesday judas is planning that's why it's silent he was planning in secret jesus is planning Judas is telling the religious leaders, we're going to get him on Thursday. I don't know where we're taking Passover, but the minute I know, I'm going to come get you guys, so be ready. Jesus is planning where Passover will be held secretly away from Judas so that Judas doesn't know where it is, doesn't get the guards, doesn't show up before they even arrive so they can enjoy Thursday evening. That's historically what's going on on Silent Wednesday. That leads us to the second question. Theologically, what's going on? What's going on? What's the point of all this? We, we see the narrative, and now I want to apply it. What's the point of a silent day, of literally studying and putting a sermon out there on something the Bible spills no ink on? Here's the, here's the answer. If Judas had, had his way, the guards would have been waiting in the upper room for Jesus when he first enters. They would have arrested him then and there. They would have tried him that evening. They would have killed him at the very first light of Friday morning. And Jesus does not want that to happen. Go to Luke chapter 22, back over to Luke 22. Jesus tells us something that is just amazing in verse 15. When they are reclining at the table in the upper room on Thursday night, Jesus says to his disciples, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you. I have earnestly, this is something that I have desired and I've longed for. Literally, the word they're earnestly desired, in the Greek, is a word that is translated in other places in the New Testament as lusted. In the New Testament, in the Greek usage of the word lust, it's not wrong, it's not a moral word or an immoral word in and of itself. It's whatever you're lusting for that makes it moral or immoral. And so he's lusting. He has such a strong heart for his disciples, and to be with them. So it's not a bad lust, it's a good lust. It's an earnest desire to be with his disciples, to institute the Lord's Supper, to be with them. And he will stop at nothing, even if he has to plan in secret all day Wednesday, he will stop at nothing to make this happen. Think with me about what we would have missed if he didn't plan out Silent Wednesday. Think of what we would have missed. Jesus shows up in the upper room, and the guards are there, and they take him away. Think of everything we would have missed if that had happened. First thing, John chapter 13, the washing of the disciples' feet. One of the most magnificent pictures of servanthood in the Bible, that Jesus takes the towel, girds himself with it, has the basin of water, washes their feet, including Judas, whom he knows is going to betray him massive implication for serving one another and even serving and loving our enemies luke 22 we wouldn't have had the institution of the lord's supper we wouldn't take communion if silent wednesday had not happened we wouldn't have a memorial that every time we partake of it soothes our souls as we think and contemplate on the gospel we wouldn't have that we wouldn't have john chapter 14 This upper room discourse where Jesus is teaching his disciples, and he talks about the beauty of the helper that's going to come. Actually, turn there. Turn to John chapter 14. I love this section. Verse 1, don't let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, because I'm going to prepare a place for you And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, you may be also. We wouldn't have that promise of Jesus going to prepare a place for us. We're waiting now for the fulfillment of him coming to get us and take us back home to be with him. We wouldn't have that promise. If you keep moving in John chapter 14, you'll see the reality of the the Holy Spirit. Verse uh, verse 26 the helper the Holy Spirit whom the Father will send in my name he'll teach you all things he'll bring to your remembrance all that I said to you peace I leave with you my peace I give to you and don't let your hearts be troubled we wouldn't have that statement we wouldn't have John 15 verses 14 through 15 you are my friends if you do what I command no longer do I call you slaves for the slave doesn't know what his master is doing but I've called you friends because all things that I have heard from my Father I've made known to you we wouldn't have that We would just think of our relationship with God as a relationship of slave to master, which it is, but it goes deeper than that, in a familial sense of son and daughter to father, of friend to friend. We wouldn't have that. We wouldn't have John 16 of the beauty of the Holy Spirit, the promise of the resurrection. Also, verse 23, or verse 33, a verse that many of you have memorized. These things I have spoken to you, chapter 16, verse 33 so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage. I've overcome the world. We wouldn't have the beauty of the high priestly prayer in John 17, which if you just read it slowly and meditate on its realities, you cannot help but be brought to tears knowing the love that Christ has for you. We wouldn't have the Garden of Gethsemane, right? We wouldn't have Mark chapter 14, where Jesus is praying in Gethsemane. Three times, Father, if there is any other way, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, yours be done. We wouldn't have that staggering display of submission and obedience. And then we wouldn't have John 18, which I want to begin just briefly this morning. John 18, the arrest of Christ. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with the disciples over the ravine of the Kidron Valley and the Kidron Brook. And there's a garden. He enters with his disciples into the garden. And Judas also, who's betraying him, knew the place. Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas knows this place, and Jesus knows that Judas knows. That's why Jesus goes there. He is not a victim. He is planning this. He is a victor in this entire week. He knows that Judas knows that this is the place that he's going to be in. So he goes there knowing that Judas is going to meet him there. A coward would never have gone to the garden. A coward would go, uh, Judas knows where I'm going to go, so I'm going to go the opposite way. Judas then, having received the Roman cohort, the officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. So there's Sadducees, there's Pharisees, there's Romans, these are all enemies. The, The cohort of soldiers is 200 up to 600 Roman officers. They're all coming out with swords and shields and clubs. They know this man's power, they're terrified of him. They're bringing torches. Why are they bringing torches? We know that the 14th of Nisan, when Passover takes place, it's a full moon. So you have plenty of light. They're bringing torches because they're thinking this is going to be a chase. He's going to go uh, hide out in dark locations. We've got to go find him. This is not going to be an easy task. And yet Jesus, in uh, stunning majesty, shows up. And he initiates the conversation with them. You remember? Verse 4. Jesus, knowing all things that were coming upon him, went forth and said to them, Who do you seek? That's not the words of a coward, right? This isn't a martyr. This is somebody who is in control, sovereignly. He knows everything. He is working and planning and purposing. So he says, Who do you seek? And they're stunned. They answer, Well, Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, I am. I am. And they all fall back. Right? Judas, who was betraying him, was standing with them, so that when he said, I am, they drew back, they fell down to the ground. This isn't some you know, silly Monty Python movie clip where somebody slips on the ground and then like dominoes, everybody else falls over. This is terrified of the majesty of Christ. He says, I am. That's God's personal name, Yahweh. I am. It's an amazing thing, Yahweh. I am. If I were to say to you, Hi, everyone, my name is Patrick, and I am. You would think, uh, you are what? (laughs) Kind of stop there, mid-sentence. Hey, I'm Patrick, and I am, okay, (laughs) you are what? You need a predicate. You need something that describes what you're saying. I am tall. I am tired. I am hungry. But God needs no predicate. He needs nothing else. He is sovereignly self-sufficient. And so he simply says, I am. They're there to arrest him. But he, with just those two words, arrests them. He's not trapped. He's not tricked. He's triumphant. And then he says this. When he asks again in verse 7, whom do you seek? They say, Jesus the Nazarene. He said, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these go their way. And he said this, verse 9, to fulfill the word which he spoke of those whom you have given me, I lost not one. I love this section. Why is that a fulfillment? When Jesus says, hey, let them go, he is fulfilling a prophecy that he made. I'm not going to lose one of my disciples. Why is that a fulfillment? Why is that a fulfillment? Well, what kind of faith do these disciples have right now? They're terrified. They don't have much, if any, faith right now. And for sure, they don't have the kind of faith that would last through torture and disturbing, horrific death. And so Jesus, knowing that, protects them, let them go. Hypothetically, you need that word hypothetically, but hypothetically, if they had been arrested, they would have lost their faith. That's why Jesus says, let them go, and don't take them, to fulfill the promise that says I'm not losing any of them. Why? Because if your faith is too weak, hypothetically, if your faith is too weak and the test is too strong, you could lose your salvation. If your faith is too weak and the test is too strong, you could lose your salvation. So Jesus steps in to make sure neither of those happen. He steps in to make sure, okay, if your faith is too weak right now, if you're struggling, then I'm not giving you a test. This is 1 Corinthians ten thirteen, right? No, temptation has overtaken you, but what's common to man, and God is faithful who will always provide a way of escape. Sometimes that's sitting under the trial and staying in it because he's gonna strengthen your faith. And sometimes as your faith starts to crumble, he says, trial's done. This is too much, trial's too much. And I'm removing the trial completely. Hypothetically, if your faith is too weak and the test is too strong, you could lose your salvation, but God will never allow that. God steps in and says, I'm not going to let you go through this now. So he will either keep us from the trial or give us grace and faith in the moment of the trial to be sustained through it. A salvation that is authentically possessed is a salvation that can never be lost, and God makes sure of that. He prevents the possibility of us sinning ourselves into eternal condemnation. Uh, Romans chapter 8 says that. What can separate us from the love of God? Can we separate ourselves from God's love? No. So you cannot be lost. If you are a believer, you cannot ever be lost because Jesus will pray you into heaven, which is John 17, and he'll protect you into heaven, which is John 18. We would have none of this if Silent Wednesday had not happened. You remember Peter, verse 10, decides he's going to fight. He's a better fisherman than a fighter. He cuts off Malchus's ear. He was aiming for his neck, but he missed because Malchus ducked. And again, you can hear it, right? You can hear the clanking of swords. You can hear that sound as it comes out of its sheath, that sh- You can hear Malchus's scream. You can hear blood dripping on the ground. You can hear the chaos that is ensuing. And you can hear Jesus stand up in the midst of it and say, no more of this. Luke chapter 22, verse 51, enough. Then he heals Malchus's ear. This is the last miracle that he does before dying on the cross. He could have asked. Remember Matthew twenty-six verse fifty-three. He could have asked the Father to provide more than twelve legions of angels. A legion is six thousand troops. So six times twelve is seventy-two. So seventy-two thousand. And Jesus says, "I could have asked for more than that right now." He had a million reasons. Jesus had a million reasons to turn away and run. He had only one reason to stay in that garden, and it's you. He wanted the Father to be glorified in his obedience in purchasing you. So he stays in the the garden. He stays in the garden, and here in the garden, glory is supremely displayed in places where it seems most impossible. Jesus says, I must drink the cup that the Father has given to me, and so I'm not going to let that go through my hands. I'm going to hold it. I'm going to drink it. It's the cup of God's wrath. He says, I'm not letting that go to somebody else. The cup of God's wrath will be poured out. It will be. That's not a question. The only question is, who's going to drink it? And so Jesus says, I'm going to drink it on your behalf so that you don't have to drink it. And my friends, I, I just... I plead with you this morning, if you don't know that you have placed your trust in Jesus's drinking of the Father's wrath so that it's done, it's finished, he paid for it all in your place, you have nothing to do, don't live a good life to earn God's love, don't try harder to make God love you or earn his favor, that you simply say Jesus did it all and I trust in his sacrifice in my place. Just cling to him and cling to him alone for salvation. If you have not done that, today is the day to cling to Christ and say, I'm done with trying. I'm done with making myself look good or trying to be righteous because I can't and I will have to drink that cup of God's wrath. And if you're here this morning and you know that you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, that you know you're saved without a shadow of a doubt, this is the morning that we should exalt the Lord for what he's done. That cup will be poured out. The question is, who's going to drink it? So we wouldn't have any of this. We could go on and on and on. We wouldn't have any of these things if Silent Wednesday hadn't happened. We wouldn't have any of these theological realities. In the silence of Wednesday, Jesus is planning Thursday so that we would have all of these accounts. If he doesn't plan Wednesday, we have none of these glorious realities given to us. And brothers and sisters, he's doing the same thing in your life today. He's doing the same thing in your life today. What is he doing in the moments of silence and waiting? He's planning and purposing and plotting for your greatest good and your greatest joy. Even when it feels like he's not there, he's working. Even when it feels like he's not answering, he's working. What is it that you're waiting for? Maybe you're waiting for a marriage to reconcile, or maybe you're waiting for God to open your womb so that you can have a child. Maybe you're waiting for a godly man or a godly woman to come along so that you can befriend them for the purpose of marriage one day. Maybe you're waiting for life just not to hurt so much. Maybe you're waiting for relief or hope to be yours again. Maybe you're waiting to have joy. My question to you this morning is, will you worship God in the waiting, knowing that he's working? Will you worship God in the waiting, knowing that he's working? Psalm 27, verse 14, wait for the Lord be strong, let your heart take courage, yes, wait for the Lord. Psalm 37, verse 7, rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Don't fret because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who carries out wicked schemes. Psalm 62, verse 5, my soul waits in silence for God. Hope is from him. All of Psalm 130 talks about waiting for the Lord. Psalm 25, verse 3 says, indeed, none of those who wait for you will be ashamed. No one who waits on the Lord will be put to shame. Psalm 52, verse 9, I will give thanks forever because you have done it, and I will wait on your name because you are good. Isaiah 40, verse 29 through 31, which Luke already read this morning, God gives strength to the weary, and to him who lacks might, God increases their power. Do you realize that your helplessness tempts God's omnipotence, right? If you lack power, God wants to give you strength. So come before him and say I have no power, and I'm waiting, and and it's silent, and I'm struggling, and God says, I want to give you strength. The believer can be still and rest because we know that our God never stands still. He's working on our behalf. Even at this very moment, Jesus is unceasingly interceding for believers, Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1. He's unceasingly working in our lives, Philippians chapter 2, verse 13, and he's unceasingly arranging all things together for his good purpose on behalf of believers, Romans 8, 28. He's sovereign and he's on his his throne. So, from the perspective of the gospel, waiting is never just about getting what you've been waiting for, but more importantly about the good changes in you that God is producing through the waiting. Typically, when we think of waiting, we think of what we're missing out, what we're missing out on. We're missing out on something because we're waiting for it and we're not getting it, so we're missing out. But this silent day teaches us that actually the waiting is so that we won't miss out. God was waiting and God was silent so that we won't miss out. If God wasn't waiting and wasn't silent, we would have missed out. The silence is not meant to keep us from something, but rather, it's meant to enable us to enjoy something. So whatever you're waiting for, will you trust God that he's working for your good? Sometimes we misinterpret the quietness of God for his absence, but Silent Wednesday shows us that we can trust him. The silence is meant to bring satisfaction in the end, and our Savior, our friend, Oh, he knows exactly what it is like to be met with silence. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he prays three times and he receives no answer. Is there any other way? Can can you let this cup pass me by? No answer. Silence. And in the silence and in the waiting, Jesus knew that the Father was good and was working for the greatest purpose possible to bring about salvation for those who would believe. So in the silence and the waiting, will you worship? will you worship in the waiting knowing that he's working and trusting that he is working for your greatest good and for his greatest glory. Father, we thank you so much for our time this morning in your word that shows us so many realities, so so many that we've missed along the way in Wednesday and Thursday, but just some highlights this morning of the beauty that in the silence and in the waiting we can worship you because we know you're working. You don't want us to miss out on anything. And sometimes that's why there's silence. That's why there's waiting so that we won't miss out. So Father, I pray for my friends here, my brothers and sisters here this morning. I know that we're all waiting for something. We're all waiting for something. If if we're not waiting for anything else, we're waiting for you to come back. We're waiting for sin to be done. We're waiting for evil to stop. We're waiting for suffering to be over. If nothing else, we're waiting for your return. And we're wondering, just like Habakkuk, how long? How long until you come back? Well, we're ready today. Come back. Why are you waiting? And the answer, just like Silent Wednesday, and just like we see all over the pages of Scripture, the answer is because you have good purposes that could not be accomplished if you acted now. You're waiting because you want more people to repent. So God, we, we say with Job, we repent in dust and ashes. We, we are so low to the ground in our submission to you this morning that we say in the silence and in the waiting, I will worship because I know you're not abandoning me. I know you're working for my good. So we thank you, we praise you, we ask for your help to worship in the waiting, and to be satisfied even in the silence. We pray it all in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Hey, let's stand together and just uh, sing that second verse. In the silence, in the waiting, still we can know you are good. All your plans, including the ones that require waiting, Therefore, God's glory and our good. So yes, we can know you are good. In the silence. In the waiting, still we can know you are good. All your plans are for your glory. Yes, we can know you are good. Yes, we can know you are good. Yes, we can know you are good. Let's sing this chorus together. The Lord our God is... Ever faithful, never changing, through the ages, from this darkness, you will lead us, and forever we will say, you're the Lord our God. And all God's people said... Amen. Blessings on the rest of your Lord's Day. Enjoy sweet fellowship with one another. Encourage each other in the waiting. Ask each other, what are you waiting for? Where do you feel God is silent? Let's live these things out together in love today. God bless you all.